Hello and welcome to HMA Talk. I'm Mark Orchard, Chief Financial Officer at Portsmouth Hospitals. And in this episode, I get to connect with someone that I've admired from afar for quite some time. Her name is Nikki Briggs, and she's the Chief Finance Officer for the newly created NHS Cambridgeshire and Peterborough Integrated Commissioning Board. Lots of you will recognise Nikki, not least because she currently holds the NHS Finance Director of the Year Award, an accolade she received in a very worthy fashion at the most recent December 2021 HMA Awards Ceremony. I think you might enjoy this episode, not least because Nikki is much more than your average CFO. And as a little bit of a spoiler alert, one of Nikki's first employed roles involved both saving lives and stopping any heavy petting. But we'll get to that in due course. For now, kick back and enjoy HFMA Talk in conversation with Nikki Briggs. Nikki, good afternoon. How are you doing? Afternoon, Mark. Doing really well. Um, now, um, already in this podcast series, I've had the great pleasure of talking to many people, Nikki, as I'm sure you know. Uh, we've spoken to Hardy Ferdy, Sandra Easton, Paul Bauman, Alan Brace, Julian Kelly, Owen Harkin, Bill Shields. But you are the very first ICB CFO that we've had on the series uh, so far. So why don't we start right there? in terms of your new role. Tell us about your new role. Uh, tell us about your ambition for Cambridgeshire and Peterborough as one of just 42 integrated care boards that were established on the 1st of July. Um, yeah, so, well, that's a, a big introduction and great company to be in, isn't it, really? Uh, and it's it's going to be a really interesting, exciting time, I think, as we move into the, you know, the new um, the new way of, of working across the NHS um, and also for me, moving across to a new role in Cambridge and Peterborough. So new system, new um, new organisation, new area, um, and obviously uh, brand new organisations as we're all establishing those 42 integrated care boards. I think for me, this is um, a real opportunity moment for the NHS. So it's a, a real opportunity to, to bring collaboration to the forefront and to actually manage from a financial perspective, business, operational uh, as a true system. So I think that, you know, Joe Public patients just see the NHS, they don't see those organisational boundaries. And the better we can get at making sure the way we set ourselves up is the way that the public sees us, I think is, is uh, you know, only going to be a positive. Um, I think there's some real challenges um, financially, uh, being one of the big ones, constrained resources. Um, so it's it's great and easy to be in partnership, isn't it? Well, while everyone's pulling in the same direction, but once you put a constraint, uh, constraining factor in like finance, I think it's going to be a tricky conversation to have. But hopefully, um, you know, again, the focus needs to be on that integrated care, better pathways of care and how we can look at funding flows across those pathways rather than into organisations. For me, um, I think it's going to be a challenge for finance professionals to work differently and to break down those commissioner provider barriers. So I think for me, it's how do we move in that ICB space into a enabling functions and that business partnering function rather than the, the typical commissioner provider relationships. I think that almost has to go immediately um, for us to, to really see benefits. I think from a CFO perspective, it's people that can gain consensus to negotiate and work with uh, the the providers who ultimately are the ones that deliver the care to to patients and how we how we can look at system first as a priority rather than just organisation you know collection and or or co, you know uh, you know co, collection of organisation priorities how do we actually genuinely put the patient at the heart of what we do um, I think the other 
challenge for me is around health inequalities, how we put that at the heart rather than it feels like we at times can sometimes just pay lip service to it. So how do we as uh, finance professionals, you know, genuinely start to look at um, allocative resourcing models and things like that that will help to drive um, drive up that health equity and reduce health inequalities. Working, if we were talking at true integration, how that um, integrated care partnerships start to work and how we work with local authorities, uh, you know, health and social care need to be close. So I think those are going to be really critical uh, critical areas for us. And it'd be remiss of me not to, you know, talk about the, the one the one challenge that everyone seems to to uh, be highest on the agenda, which is our elective care, and how do we how do we work as a system uh, to support that, and and at the same time looking at building back better, you know, care closer to home, uh, more efficient practices, how we get transformation at the heart of what we do. Um, I think those are the responsibilities of the ICB, and to break down a lot of that bureaucracy. Um, I think if the first thing that we do is re-establish all of the hierarchies, we've we've really got it wrong, haven't we? So we've got to take the opportunity to work differently and, and really run with it but that that will require people to be brave because we have to move into a space where we're not all comfortable um, in terms of talking about system funding rather than how we allocate that out to organizations yeah well Nikki thanks and really really um, comprehensive intro into the world of ICBs there but and of course it'd be really easy to to um to trick ourselves into thinking that the only people who are affected by this are those on the that are directly employed by ICBs or those previously in commissioning organisations. You touched on um, providers still delivering care and the whole sort of system first um, arrangements there. Can you give us a feel for um, how you feel uh, providers within your system and, and indeed across the country need to perhaps respond differently to this change from, from July onwards? Um, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's interesting. So I spent, you know, many, many years working for a provider and at that point you, you're very much head head down not you in the the here and now extremely reactive um and and quite rightly so given the emergency pressures and then obviously um the very large um elective backlog that that almost every organization has got so i think for me it's constantly trying to ask providers to find the time to, to lift their heads up and say how do we how do we not just manage today but plan for tomorrow um, and and I think that providers got a real big opportunity to influence the agenda, particularly at place, um, and those through those kind of provider collaboratives, um, and and really bring patients and integration with primary care and other sectors closer together. Um, so you know how do we how do we look at that from a, a place perspective, which is where I think a lot of the the health inequalities work needs to to sit and feed through. Um, but as I say, it's 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 being able to support providers to lift their head up. How do we do genuinely do the integration through those provider collaboratives? Um, and I appreciate each system will probably set themselves up slightly differently. Um, and I think the other bit as well is it's for all of us to have a bit of patience because whatever we set up today is probably not what it's going to look like in three years' time. Um, and it's it's a point of you could spend the next year talking about governance, or you can get on and do. And try and work your way through it as you go through the agenda of you know operational uh, performance delivery and then the more strategic um, planning. Uh, can you give us a feel of scale for for um, for Cambridgeshire Peterborough ICB in terms of population and annual resource limit? You know number of places you've got. Just give us give us a feel for what you're dealing with there, Nikki. Yeah, you're testing me now, given I've not quite started the role just yet. But um, <laughs> K 
Cambridge and Peterborough has a population of about a million allocation wise, about 1.7 billion. But in terms of spend, it's uh, because of the, the large providers and the amount of specialised work and patients that they treat in other across other systems and nationally, the spend's in excess of, of three billion. Um, in terms of uh, place, uh, we're looking at, at two two places and obviously provider collaboratives at that place, but but four four um, kind of key areas within within the county. You mentioned health and social care. You also mentioned health inequalities, of course. Can you just give us a feel for how you foresee um, us being able to make some step changes in health in, in dealing with health inequalities, but also in terms of the genuine integration with social care? So there's a couple of things. There's um, a kind of radical approach that I took when I was um, working in Leicester uh, for the, the three CCGs and ICB, uh, where we moved away from the primary care, the national funding for primary care and move to a patient needs based formula. So uh, it's 100% driven by patient need. We've put in things like deprivation, communication, all those drivers of, of health inequalities. Uh, and we've effectively then moved to what we feel is a, a more, uh, obviously patient focused, but but a much more equitable model of, of funding. So there's, you know, the real radical moving away from those nationally driven formulas, which actually when we um, have done lots of, of studies and analysis on it, how we naturally are funded for primary care was driving up health uh, health inequities rather than uh, improving them because it's obviously based on, on something as generic as age and, and gender. There are, as well, I, I encourage people to, to have real deep conversations, particularly at place level, with the voluntary sector, the amount of work that they can do for such small amounts of money. So uh, we've had a couple of initiatives that we've run over the last couple of of years, one was uh, the 12 days of Christmas, but one that we've just been doing as a system, which is called Project Launch. So it's trying to get, uh, make change happen and, and make uh, our staff and frontline staff be the drivers of that change. And we, we invited um, the voluntary sector to come into that um, kind of transformation opportunity. And, you know, for something uh, as simple as uh, one of the voluntary organisations has agreed to do a two-year piece of work that targets uh, our, you know, our black African community on mental health issues, setting up a uh, sound producing where they go into hospitals and run their DJ, you know, do do effectively run their hospital DJ, but they also do uh, a lot of sound sets in the community, and and we teach them uh, and teach them obviously the skills of sound producing and and give them a, a skill, but at the same time, in an environment where they have access to mental health professionals and and to to start those conversations you know that's thirty thousand pounds and it's two years worth of work the the benefit that the voluntary sector can bring uh, i think is is massive in terms of that health health inequalities agenda um how do we integrate with social care i think if we we all had the answer we wouldn't probably we'd you know be in a different job i think it's it's tricky um it's it's tricky because it's around um they have finite levels of funding and that's the way they manage to it. And they'll change service delivery in order to hit a financial target, which is unusual, isn't it, for the NHS? We don't necessarily work that way. Service deliveries always come first. So I think for for, for me, it's around how do you get the, the transparency in those decisions um, so that we're really clear where is the, you know, looking at the conversation that I was talking about, where's, where's the best value for the Cambridgeshire pound, for the NHS pound? Because actually, sometimes it might be in social care, because the social care beds at a cost of seven hundred pounds for per week is much better than an acute bed at almost five hundred pounds a day. 
So I think that's how, um, you know, understanding the costs across the system of health and social care is a real, I think it's a big responsibility for, for ICBs and finance teams as we move forward. And I suppose um, as much as possible then, therefore, to be making the decisions, the big decisions within social care and health alongside each other so to get the full context of the decision making that's um, in front of you, I guess, is kind of the trajectory we're on, isn't it? It is. And it'll be very interesting because, you know, I appreciate that they have elected members and everything else and won't want um, health to be part of that. But actually, let's just have the transparency to start off with so that we recognise what the impacts are across um, the two sectors and I think that would be a big step in the right direction and then as you say being around the table when those decisions are made to have that ability to influence not necessarily always making the decision but to be able to influence that I think is going to be a real a real step forward if we can get into that place. Yeah so transparency and then context within which we're making decisions even even though we're, we're making decisions across different statutory sectors at this stage. So you've been promoted into one of the um, 42 new ICB roles, but um, I'm sure as you picked up from these, these in conversation podcasts, our listeners generally like to hear about the career story, how individuals got to the roles they're in and, and the career journey they're on. So I just wanted to have a quick glide through your uh, career backstory, if that's okay. And so I can see you were finance director before this role um, at Leicestershire and Rutland CCGs uh, for a couple of years. And before that, you were 10 years at Kettering General Hospital. So um, 10 years in an acute environment across four different roles. Really intrigued to see that you, before that, you were Northamptonshire Police um, and before that, Cambridgeshire County Council. And even delving a bit deeper into your past, I could see when you were studying for your um, uh, maths degree at Sheffield, uh, you also did a, um, an undergraduate placement for a year at Vauxhall Motors. So you've literally covered pretty much every sector there, I think, Nikki. So um, what, that's, a, that's a broad ranging CV. So, um, so unpack that a bit for us and um, yeah, give us a bit of insight into what you've learned along the way. Yeah, I do. I do think I should get a medal or something. I think if you tick all the sectors off, surely we, there should be some kind of um, some kind of achievement award. I think to do that. Um, so I, I I kind of fell into accountancy. I guess like I don't know. I've not met anyone where it's been their number one. You know, on the careers day, it's the one thing they woke up when they were five years old and said they desperately wanted to do. But uh, as you say, I, I had a progressive degree in maths um, just because I enjoyed it. Um, no other reason and and um you know just really interested by it and then it came to i'd i'd picked a degree where you've got a placement year um and the voxel placement was one of the kind of top placements to get and so uh went into it as a finance analyst not really knowing what that was and and just genuinely you know loved the experience um was offered the opportunity to go back um but the private sector at, at that time and and particularly manufacturing was going through quite a lot of change um, so I thought, well, I'll see what else is out there on the, the graduate market. And and for me, there's there's always been something about the private sector of it. It's it's relatively easy. And so I quite like the idea of doing something a bit different with constrained resources. And there's a public sector pull uh, from a family background. So, uh, yeah, I, I had a couple of opportunities on the table, one with Transport for London, one with Cambridgeshire County Council and and went, went with the Cambridgeshire County Council and, uh, you know, completely uprooted moved moved there and and had a fantastic time because you got the opportunity to try all different careers uh so for everything from audit which i decided very quickly i didn't like um through to um kind of your corporate financial financial accounting background and then management accounts and, and really felt at home in in management accounts um 
so stayed stayed there for uh, kind of I think probably like five years or so, and then was uh, approached actually by uh, by North by Northampton Police because I'd done uh, the first nationally the first shared services for the county council and written the the business case about joining Cambridgeshire and Northampton's uh, county council together. So had quite a bit of experience from that that perspective, and they were looking at doing the same thing from a back office perspective so was approached about about that and I knew it was going to be a relatively short-term role but thought it'd be really good experience let's try it in a different sector see what that was like on my first day was called mom which was really strange uh, <laughs> so quickly realized how high I mean if we think the NHS is hierarchical go work for a police force it's uh, it's absolutely bizarre um, and and those said did merged uh, kind of two devolved finance teams and under one uh, and, and did a big whole, uh, again, back office shared services uh, approach there. You qualified for that point, I understand, is that right? Yeah, I qualified when I was at Cambridge County Council. So, yeah, I qualified as part of the graduate scheme. You had to take two exams every six months. So it was kind of a fast track to qualification of those days of heady days of working and, and studying at the same time. So, yeah, I think I got my qualification, at, you know, about three, two, three years after after joining the graduate scheme. So. Yeah, went went over to Northampton Police, fully qualified, and and doing some work with them, um, and then then again you'll you'll find this with my career, no real career plan. Then uh, via one of the police officers, they were talking to, uh, and were really good friends with uh, a guy called Marcus Thorman, who was the director of finance at Kettering at the time, and you'll know him from the Royal Marsden and and via Imperial. Um, so he was desperate at Kettering to get business partners in that had worked in different sectors so it wasn't just the typical NHS background um, so I had a conversation with him uh, kind of told me about the role knew nothing about the NHS at the time um, and thought well well why not because the project work that I was doing at Northampton was coming to an end and thought well well let's give it a try so joined them as a business partner back in 2000 and 2010 uh, at a time where I think the business partner function was very much a new thing. There were very few organisations that were doing it now. It was very much the traditional finance and management accounts. So we had spent most of our time, I think, for the first year that we worked there, explaining to people what we were supposed to be doing mm. um, and uh, trying to get the team to work differently and to really engage with clinical business units rather than, you know, just reporting and sitting in a an office block, but actually, you know, genuinely engaging with them. And then I just... Stopped at Kettering just because new opportunities kept arising. So, um, and and I always described Kettering Hospital as a, as a, it's like a family business. It's one of those where you've got some absolutely fantastic people. Um, it's it was a, a great ground in uh, a, a you know a, a DGH medium DGH. So pretty much everything that you could see, and uh, progressed up to the kind of head of financial management at the time, deputy director of finance, and then was looking at, at different opportunities, thinking I need to go for a bigger trust. I'd done the deputy for a good couple of years, three years or so. Um, and then um, we went into kind of quality special measures, uh, had a big well-led review, um, was inadequate for well-led, a whole load of uh, transformation support came in. And, and I thought, well, this this seems really interesting. They were looking at an opportunity for a director of transformation. And um, I thought, well, actually, let's, I've constantly said that we we should do more. Um, and I thought, well, I'll put my money where my mouth is and actually go out and 
and deliver rather than reporting about things actually. And that's probably, I only ended up doing the role for, for six months, um, but it was probably the biggest, um, the biggest learning curve I've had in my whole career to take a step out of that finance environment and actually go and really try and deliver through operational teams and, and try and to understand and push through genuine productivity and transformation improvements. Um, and then I, um, due to, you know, circumstances uh, that I was completely unaware of, I then got a phone call on a Friday night saying, could you come in on the Monday and be the director of finance? Um, so, <laughs> so I, at that time, didn't have, uh, didn't know what plans I had. I, I kind of always wanted to be a director of finance, but maybe not that soon, was really enjoying the transformation side, but got, you know, was uh, cajoled into, well, well, yes, and then walked in on the Monday morning in, in December 2016 to the director of finance uh, at Kettering and then uh, kind of acted up for about six, seven months and then the role went out and it was a real um, competitive process and at the time, because those were the things that were, were absolutely done, you know, it, 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 it trust in it with a big deficit, it it felt like it needed someone external and all of that, but but um, yeah, managed to hold my own with with some uh, some of the candidates and uh, and was appointed into that role and then through the journey of taking on taking on other things, so um, I took on strategy, which was really quite quite interesting uh, and, and unusual, I think, for a director of finance to to have that strategy portfolio. Um, and spent four years as the director of finance there. Had some. Uh, you know some real real positives obviously being able to to keep us on a on a, a, a improving trajectory from a finance perspective build up the reputation get a really good rapport um with not just the board the organization but also the um the the kind of regulators and 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 continued with with my love of innovation and efficiencies and and did things like dragons then that I'm sure there's photos around of of me dressed as a dragon somewhere um <laughs> And then after four years, again, was thinking it's about the right time for a, for a change. And uh, Mark Mansfield, who was the director of finance in the region at the time, uh, I had a conversation with him and said, you know, what, what do you know that's about what's coming up? And he said, have you thought about a CCG role? And I said, well, no, I, I just think it's too, it's not, it's not exciting enough. And he said, oh, I don't know, because these things called ICBs are coming along. So you've got a real opportunity. There's a move to being much more system focused it's not just a commissioner role uh, and so again I had conversations with Leicestershire uh, I had a fantastic rapport with the, the chief exec brand new really good forward thinking exec team over there and, and felt like we could really make a difference particularly on as I say that health inequalities agenda opportunity to do something different um, and started that organisation in the middle of Covid so yeah met, met everyone there <laughs> virtually and and then uh, as we've moved into the, the new ICB space, had the opportunity for the first time, I think in about 15 years to actually go back home, back, well, it's not, not home, but go back to where I live and, and be able to work in Cambridgeshire and, and be a patient and uh, a board member, which I think is really important that you have at least one or two members of your board that are a part of that, that population. So really excited. There's some fantastic stuff going on at, at Cambridgeshire and Peterborough and excited to have uh, joined joined that team fantastic and um certainly i think the the, the bit that i took from uh, one of the things i took from that your your forward thinking with uh, nature but ability to be flexible and agile across the way as well 
And I think um, you moving out of finance for that period, although it was only six months in the end, but into a director transformation role, probably um, really says a lot about you, I guess. Uh, but but I, but I imagine you gained so much from that. But one of the things um, I wanted to just touch on now, if that's okay, is I saw that prior to university, you spent your teenage years as a lifeguard. Um, so amongst everything you've already said, so amongst all the broad experience you've got in terms of police authority, local authority, private sector, Vauxhall Motors, uh, acute sector, um, you know, commissioning sector, system roles, but you also add to the add to CV lifeguard in there as well. The bit that um, I found most remarkable was where you described that as being about saving lives and stopping any heavy petting. So um, I'm going to have to ask you to explain that uh, for our listeners because uh, I'm a little bit intrigued. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's a fantastic job as a 16 to kind of 18 year old being a lifeguard is, you know, what more you get to wear shorts and t-shirt on a daily basis. And, you know, it wasn't, it didn't feel like it was a hard kind of Saturday job or evening job to do <laughs> until you start it and then realise that most swimming pools and particularly things like uh, any inflatable fun sessions are just death traps, really. Um and that at any school holidays, a lifeguard is basically a, a babysitter. <laughs> uh, so, and the the heavy petting is, uh, yeah, it's <laughs> it's it's hilarious. Of all the rules that used to be up on the side of the pool, it's the one that made me laugh the most. That we were we'd have to blow our whistle if there was heavy petting. Now, I, I never quite quant- asked anyone to quantify what constituted heavy petting, but we used to have these uh, moonlight swims, which which started to get you know an area where you'd have to just keep an eye on certain people anyway. But um, <laughs> I think I think I had a tally at some point. I think I saved, I, I dove in and saved something in the region of about 25, 26, uh, largely kids, uh, uh, people's lives. So that's that's always good, isn't it, to say that say that you've been able to do that. And uh, other than that, it was, it was an, I think that's where my love of pranks came, though, to be fair, from working at a, a sports centre because... Anytime anyone ever left, you'd normally at some stage find all of their gear and, and uh, find a way of pushing them in and then floating out all of their dry clothes to them on a float. Or uh, most people that left would take a bottle of fairy liquid to the slide, the jets on the slide, and you'd suddenly get uh, quite a few things. Uh, I think one of, the, one of the reasons I knew I was a bit of a rule breaker at the start, there was a red button that said, do not touch on it. So, you know, as usual, these big signs and there's... I, looked at it for a year and used to get in the staff room just be like no one ever knew what it was everyone that I asked no one ever knew what it was and I, I was in a particular cheeky mood I think one evening and thought I said to to the the other lifeguard that I was on with um I'm gonna press it just see what happens so pressed it I was on the next morning and I got a phone call at just before about half past five in the morning saying Nick no need to come in the pool's empty so <laughs> and did you know anything about any you know did you see any workmen there's been workmen about did you see anyone or, or anyone that pressed anything so I quickly found out what that red button was which uh, obviously emptied the pools and uh, I'm sure someone was cursing me of uh, losing out on on income for the morning while the pools refilled I'll give him a chance to clean the pool I guess but but uh, oh, that's, fun, that's fascinating my son has just finished his GCSEs um but he's a he's a competitive swimmer and he's a triathlete and um, he's got nothing to do in the summer and a couple of days back um, I was picking him up from one of his pool sessions and I noticed they've got, um, they're advertising for lifeguards, uh, 16 and above, and of course he's 16. So, um, and I said to him, what could be easier than sat there, you know, um, 
you know, uh, observing people and occasionally maybe diving in and blowing the whistle and so on. But I'll, but obviously there's a bit more to it than that than I'd expected, Nikki. So I'll share some of this with him, with him this evening. <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's a great for a Saturday job. It's pretty, you know much better than working on a shop or or anything like that. I had a great time. <laughs> but, but don't press that red button, right? It was a red button. Yeah, don't anything that says do not press, don't press it. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Right, and I mentioned at the start that you're also the current holder and most recent winner. Um, in an all-female uh, shortlist, uh, not least, uh, of the HMA Finance Director of the Year Award last year, uh, where you were described as an exemplary, exemplary and innovative leader who's made an impact at lo- local and national level uh, on several fronts, Nikki, um, not least primary care, but also uh, tackling broader health inequality, addressing a significant system deficit, bringing three finance teams together as part of that role and championing diversity and inclusion. So first of all, congratulations. What I'd, what I'd like to do, if that's okay with you, for those that maybe haven't had a chance to uh, have a look at the um, awards briefing that HMA always do very well after these events, uh, could you just unpack for us a bit more about you know how you became nominated um, and some of the reasons behind the decision to award um, that accolade to you and really just you know why are you so proud to be finance director of the year, Nikki? Uh, yeah, so it's, I think, uh, I still don't think it's quite sunk in. It's pretty overwhelming. I think I was just absolutely... Uh, made up and, and buzzing to be on the shortlist to be honest and to be on there with with two other fantastic female CFOs you know I think is a, a real uh, positive for the for HFMA and uh, you know something to be really proud of to have that all female female shortlist and and to be honest like I said at the time my money was on Sue uh, I think she's done some fantastic stuff obviously quite a neighbouring system as well so had watched uh, from afar at how some of the brilliant things that that she'd been doing so yeah, it was a, a real shock. And actually, I was just quite happy to have, have made the shortlist. And, and so I was that in itself was a, an achievement. Um, how it came about, I think, was just during COVID, obviously, there was, um, with regards to the finance regime, there's very little opportunity to, to do things. It was very much nationally led, wasn't it? And and we I sat with the our chief exec at the time and the board, and they just said, actually, do you know what, in the inner city GPs have been saying they've been underfunded for years. How about, because we've got a bit of time, a bit of headspace, can you look into it and see if there's anything to it and what the opportunities are? And by the way, we've got this fantastic retired GP and a, a brilliant population health, uh, head of population health management who've been working on a model, that a different way of funding primary care, uh, see if there's anything in it and what we could do. So um, that, that, effectively in about six months then became the LLR primary care funding model of which we we then uh, so I, I led a big task and finish group <laughs> extensive amounts of engagement um, and we we rolled out managed to start the project in October get some fantastic people just a case of, of really trying to manage those funding flows really I think was the the key to unlocking it all actually a whole load of other people had done some brilliant innovative work it was just me coming along to kind of unlock the the finances around it um and and because of that it it it's the first one that had been done nationally it brought a lot of um attention from people who have a fantastic relationship now with uh, Dr Bola Olawabi uh who's the director of health inequalities for NHSIE been working with the health foundation and last week had phone calls with number 10 which was quite interesting and uh, <laughs> Uh, really unusual place and st- just bizarre to to find that we're having those kind of conversations and and starting to roll the model out in other areas, which is real positive. Real positive. So I think that's one of the big 
pieces of work and and for me it was just the opportunity to really do something different um you know what from a finance perspective while covid was just being driven very very nationally i think the second reason is just my approach to innovation um so yes i appreciate that there are big schemes and big ways big ways of doing transformation and you know the productivity agenda and girth and everything else but to me you engage people by making it fun and by getting the frontline people in the organization so at Kettering for two years, I'd done Dragon's Den, uh, 200 odd people in the audience, uh, you know, lots of ideas um, and some fantastic, uh, you know, pictures that have come out the back of that. And some, you know, we've won awards nationally for some of the things that happened. So moving a, a thoracoscopy procedure from five days length of stay to, to doing it in a day case, you know, things like that, being able to say that you've been behind initiatives by just, again, offering hundred thousand pounds it was at the time uh people didn't have to write you know i don't like to you know let's stop the endless form filling don't project manage the life out of everything um just made it dead easy and, and people could put in video pictures they came and did presentation uh, removed powerpoint weren't allowed to use that just actually use themselves and and actually clinicians and frontline staff really appreciated it because they don't have time to fill in a form and they came and 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 just did some brilliant pictures, uh, brought that into LLR and did 12 days of Christmas again with COVID and everything else. Everyone said, oh, everyone will be too busy. I don't think it's going to work. We gave out £5,000 a day for the 12 days leading up to Christmas on uh, you know ideas that would help improve staff health and wellbeing, patient experience, transform services. And we had 70 ideas You know, at a time when it was the busiest time, uh, just because people could see that there's opportunities on the back of it. And then we've just managed to be really, really uh, fortunate in, in having the, the funding last year to create a uh, project boost, um, which is where we set aside just under two million for, again, ideas from frontline staff. So uh, basically said to them, you know, you know, the ideas the best, you know, ways in which you can improve and, and, and better patient care. How could you do it? Um, and tell us how you can do it and we'll support you in being able to do that so make them the project managers and it's it's brilliant you've some of the some of the great things isn't just uh, the successes uh you know we've got buzzy shots and and some of the stuff and uh, we've um some activities with wheelchair groups but actually for me it was uh, a hca that is now um halfway through her qualifications to becoming a nurse because someone believed that she could um, and she, from to, on the back of her uh, successful bid at Dragons, then took that to say, well, actually, do you know what? I can do more than than what I'm doing, and people will are willing to listen to me. So, I think yeah, the innovation side is also one of the things, and then also some of the leadership work that I've I've done, not just with my team, joining a team, <laughs> joining a team when you meet them all virtually for the first year and a half is very strange. I I write a blog every week, which is telling them about things that I'm sitting on, things that I think that they would find interesting um, and also just, you know, engaging in the, the general news and, and other things and trying to make people laugh a little bit as well and telling them a bit about me. Uh, and also we, we use it as a, a way to have a shout out to, to people who've, who've done something really good and uh, where people, you know, aren't often thanked enough. So I think that's it's gone down really well. It really worked in, in COVID of being able to keep in touch with the team. Um, and then I do quite a lot of work now with and being able to fortunate enough to do some work with the HFMA and some of the regional groups for 
for um, for EDI, I chair the digital committee. Um, I worked with HMA on the policy and research group, and and doing some of those kind of leadership events, and and they're brilliant because it just keeps your mind open to to the new things that are going on and all the things that HFMA are involved in, but all the things that you as a finance professional can get involved in as well. And and it helps keep up networks, you know. People think that networking is just rocking up to a conference and having a conversation. Actually, some of the best networks that you, you develop are through, through HFMA and those, those regional groups. And there's so many people, myself included, that are willing to give their time. When you are starting out in some of these roles and when you're more junior, you feel like you're taking up people's time and they, they're always busy and, you know, their diaries are back to back. But actually, everyone that I've ever spoke to or worked with or developed networks with have absolutely been more than willing to give give their time. Um, and I think all of us are. If it's a way of helping the next, you know, cohort of people coming through, um, it's absolutely something that all of us are willing to give our time to. I've had some fantastic um you know, mentors, but just as you say, people that you can pick up the phone to that don't necessarily fill a formal role, um, but have then exposed you and opened you up to different other networks where you then meet different different people. And, and as I say, I, I was probably one of those people that was always worried about going to the HMA conference because you didn't know anyone, but you now find, because you do the work outside that meeting in, in other groups, that actually you go to those events and it's a really good opportunity to to actually catch up and, and see how everyone is in a more informal environment. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Totally agree, especially actually the informal networking in the way you described, not necessarily formal coaches and mentors. The bit I wanted to probably come back to is you, you mentioned in there that you chair the Midlands Equality, Diversity and Inclusion Ambassadors Network. So I kind of just wanted to just, just pause on that for a second in terms of the, you know, the role of the, the network, um, what change you've been able to influence along the way, um, and where you, you know, and, and really some of the impact you've been able to make, I guess, uh, looking into the future as well. Yeah. So obviously I'll be moving regions. So I'll be handing that uh, bat on over to someone. And I think for me, um, the benefit of those networks is is being able to have, um, you know, one, a place where we can push um, the inclusion agenda forward and also for people to be able to take tips and hints off of other organisations that are either ahead of them or doing something slightly differently. So it's around how we, all of the things that are in the kind of one finance agenda around how do we look and be more inclusive on our recruitment? You know, what what approaches are people taking to that? What approaches are people taking to things like sponsorship um, and, you know, reverse mentoring and, and all of those those areas? Um, I've, I've myself um, done, done the kind of reverse mentoring. It's fantastic. Uh, you know, just to, everyone should do it. It's brilliant. Um, but it's, it's been able to hear about some organisations that, are, you know, are, are talking a lot with the, the, the EDI network up in the Northwest is much more established than the Midlands one and, and the work that they've been able to do and share best practice as well. And, the, and also it, it's, it's one of those um, networks that you don't need to have a, senior management title to be part of you know you can be anyone in that organization with an interest and be able to influence it and and also it's been able to then to access a lot of the one nhs finance information um so that you can and obviously trying to build up that ambassador network that go back into the organization or or ambassadors for for edi how i've managed to do anything i think it's not through policies or procedures because you know all of us could talk about things we've done and that i think for me it's about role modeling it it's have taking the time to listen i think one of the biggest things that we should be doing as as leaders is is listening 
and listening more uh, and then being able to build on on what we've heard and, and what we what we, what feedback we're given uh, and then role modeling you know it's being able to to talk about your personal life to talk about experiences um, to to be really comfortable and people seeing that you're comfortable having those those conversations um, so as, as you'll have seen in most of the presentations that I've done, I um, <laughs> had had struggles with COVID trying to get married uh, for, you know, two or three times, but I'm quite happy to, to, uh, to put it out there. I got married to my, my wife uh, over just, over, just under a year ago now. And, um, you know, absolutely sharing experiences like that, just to, it's, it seems really simple, but actually that's had a really powerful impact on quite a few people who've come and spoken to me on the back of it. So I think a lot of it is that being a champion, role model in it and, and most importantly listening um so what what's next for you obviously you're in the new job now what what's kind of your ambition for the future was that just a just a no plans basis and just see what happens next <laughs> yeah my career's managed all right so far without doing too much planning a um, <laughs> couple of things uh thinking about obviously getting uh getting a my 40th birthday out of the way uh that's uh passing that milestone and then uh i'm, I'm really looking forward to going over to cambridge and peterborough It'll be the first time in the NHS in a new region, so I think that'll be quite interesting. Obviously, continuing the work that we're doing with with HFMA, um, I I do want to um, start to look at that how, you know, really how we can drive the health inequalities agenda, how finance can can lead that that you know lead through those pieces of work and, and continue to push push those things. Engagement, as you said, is a massive. Just I think that the more that we can do um, and to make the finance role be much more than just finance and technical finance and to really engage with all staff, but also communities in particular. So I'm really excited from a ICB perspective of how we get through those kind of place and into the, the communities and people that we, we are here to serve ultimately. Um, and, and I think the innovation, trying to still find ways to make it fun and engage people. Uh, but I'd like to, think that part of all of our jobs over the next couple of years is to take care of our staff. I'm really concerned about health and well-being. So I think my number one priority actually is how do we how do we protect our teams? How do we make sure there are people that want to follow in our footsteps? Because at the minute it probably doesn't feel like something that they they want to do or an exciting or attractive prospect prospect. So how do we make how do we make that uh, more possible and how do we bring some of the work-life balance back and, and make sure that it's okay for people to take care of themselves so I think that would be the first thing on my agenda actually and I think should be on all of our agendas because I'm I am concerned about burnout of, of teams just because of the sheer volume and, and scale of work that we're, we're trying to get through at the minute. So listen I, I actually thought it'd be Nice at this part of the podcast, maybe just to get to know a bit more about you, Nikki. So um, I, I hear you're a sports fan. Yeah, I'm a I'm a massive uh, I'm a massive Liverpool fan. Um, for so it, which used to be a you know I used to apologise for it because we didn't win anything. You know I was born I was born in '82, so literally towards the end of where they were they were good, and then spent twenty years pretty much just ruined. You know Man United and. Uh, who pretty much spent most of the time at the top. So <laughs> Man United and Chelsea, and but now I'm actually can celebrate the fact that I'm a Liverpool fan. We've we're back into to winning ways. Um, I did used to play football um, quite competitively in my younger days. Uh, it was always a uh, you know the what's it two truths and a lie was I'd represented my country in two sports. One of them was football, 
Uh, the second one, no one will ever guess, and I'll probably open myself up to some serious, uh, serious Mickey taking is uh, synchronized swimming was the uh, second one. So, wow. Yeah, I, I'm I'm generally into into most most sports. Um, I'll I'll watch if the sports on TV. I'll generally watch it. But yeah, I, I quite like the NFL as well. Which uh, so football on in both senses, the American use of the word and the British use of the word would be my, my favourites at the minute. Oh, excellent, fantastic. I, there was a claim to fame involving Prince Harry as well in there somewhere. Oh, yeah, so, <laughs> yes, my my uh, friends often joke that whenever we go out or do something, I seem to just randomly attract uh, celebrities. I was stood in a queue for a, a bar at an airport and uh, Michael Portillo was in front of me, <laughs> which, you know, so just, just strange things seem to happen. Um, uh, to me more than anyone else but uh yeah well, I was at the Invictus Games so my um cousin's husband is in the in the army and uh, quite a number of his colleagues who were really badly injured in Afghanistan were taking part in the first Invictus Games so we went along just to support really uh, and happened to be uh, st- stood outside the toilets as Prince Harry walked out and so <laughs> completely ignored all ro- royal protocol and, and and asked him for a photograph and gave him a hug and and everything like that so yeah it was fantastic it was uh, he was a really nice guy stood chatting to us for kind of 10-15 minutes probably thought we were slightly bonkers but yeah so we've got a, a very bad photo of uh, myself with <laughs> with Prince Harry he looks all right me and my friend look a bit you know dumbstruck to be fair <laughs> Excellent. Oh, well, great story. Fantastic. Right. Um, we're on to the quick fire round now, Nikki, if that's okay. Um, no need to explain your answer, but um, you can if you wish. But so the first one is, is what were you doing immediately before this conversation? Uh, I was literally running. I ran inside while <laughs> I've got a garden office. So I ran into the house to uh, to get a cup of soup and, uh, <laughs> and a bite of a sandwich. Cause I had 15 minutes, so that's what I was doing. <laughs> Excellent. And um, second one I've got, what's the last book uh, you read or the book that you're reading now? Um, the book, the last uh, book that I read was a Jodie Pickled, um, is it Small Things or These Small Things? Uh, the one I'm reading now is Miriam Margulies' uh, autobiography, which is hilarious and not for the faint-hearted, I'd uh, suggest. Um, but more more sensible book, the... Uh, uh, two books that have probably had the most impact I think on me um, that I've read in the last couple of months is Invisible Women um, which is about how data ignores females basically and how you know the world is geared up and there's some some you know really hard-hitting facts so uh, females are are 49% more likely to be seriously injured in a car accident than male so because of the way that seatbelts are set up um and then the other one that I've read that sort of really big is The Good Immigrant, um, which again is a, a, a brilliant book. But my so you can see quite eclectic on, on books, <laughs> from hard hitting, sensible, serious ones to uh, you know, the, the bonkersness of Miriam Margulies and uh, and a bit of Jodie Pickle in between. <laughs> Indeed. Um Nikki, um we're coming to the end of our time together. I really enjoyed our conversation actually. I, I um I hope our listeners have got to know you a bit more actually. I, I certainly have. Um, and um, I'm sure we'll continue to follow you and watch you into the future. I certainly will anyway. Um, happy big birthday for a few weeks' time when that comes up. Um, thank you for being part of HMA In Conversation podcast with me, Nikki. I really enjoyed it. And to everyone listening, thank you for choosing HMA Talk. And as I said at the start, if you're enjoying listening to this new In Conversation series, 
please do spread the word as well as, well as subscribing to HMA Talk on your podcast app. And if there's anyone else that you'd like me to have a conversation with, then get in touch also. But for now, goodbye.